Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. I'm going to get personal. While I've never actually met Kate Christensen, I've become familiar with her work. Kate, my guest today, has written seven novels, four of which I've read, one right after the other, and number five is on my nightstand. I gotta say, it's been quite some time since I've been addicted to one author in particular. Some Kate background. She won the 2008 Penn Faulkner Award for her fourth novel, The Great Man, about a painter and the three women who feature prominently in his life. Then there's In the Drink, Jeremy Thane, The Epicure's Lament, Trouble, The Astral, and her most recent book, The Last Cruise, published in 2018. Kate's also written two food-related memoirs, Blue Plate Special and How to Cook a Moose, which won the 2016 Maine Literary Award for Memoir. Maine and New Hampshire happen to be where Kate, her husband, and two dogs live. She's also written for numerous periodicals, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Vogue, Elle, Food and Wine, and Book Forum. Kate's a graduate of Reed College and the Iowa Writers' Workshop. To say I'm excited and thrilled to be having a conversation with Kate Christensen would be one of life's understatements. So welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you, and thank you for that introduction. I just want to start by, I guess, gushing. I have some very weird peccadilloes. I do not read fiction by men. And in the last couple of years, it's been really hard for me to focus on books. So I go to the library and I take a book out and then I bring it back without having opened it. That was so not the case with The Last Cruise. It was a two-week book at the library. I took it out and I devoured it. And then came another one of your books and another one of your books. So I don't know what you've done to me, but it's such a clear example that reading is not a passive activity. I can't put you down. So having said all this, I want to know, why do you write? Well, first of all, why isn't every reader in the world like you? I'm so glad you exist. Thank you. Well, Um, I only exist for you, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you so much um, for existing just for me. Um, (laughs) Why I write is a question that I guess I would answer differently from day to day. Um, some days I would say, yeah, why the hell do I write? Um, I, I started writing as a little kid and I started writing, I think, for the reason that I, I felt that telling stories was a way for me to shape and make sense of um, a chaotic world that I was a little kid in. And Can you describe that world for us? Well, I was born in 1962 in Berkeley, California, and my father was a Marxist, very much an activist lawyer, politically active. Mm-hmm. Um, and he represented all kinds of all kinds of interesting characters in the Bay Area um, during the 60s, like draft dodgers, the Black Panthers, conscientious objectors. And he did a lot of it pro bono, so we didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And And he had a lot of meetings at our house. So a lot of a lot of sort of political types and Marxists would come and sit around and, and talk about the current political situation. And there was a lot to talk about um, in that era, as you know. Right. My mother um, at the time was a mother and young and made spaghetti for everyone. She was a woman. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, but but my childhood was was pretty chaotic. And and my, my father was charismatic and I adored him, but he was also violent. Um, out of nowhere and, um, and, and hit my mother regularly in front of me. And I, I, I 
it was it was like being bifurcated. Um, I, I felt my psyche split in two. This man that I adored and my mother who I adored, there was something going on I absolutely didn't understand. And really, to this day, I don't understand it. And I, I identified strongly with both of them. And um, it was hard to see my mother as a victim, and it was hard to see my father as a as an abuser. Right. It, it seems to reduce them both to to call them that. Although in any anyone's sort of way of looking at things, that's that's sort of how it broke down. But to me, they were complex, all knowing. All you know, I was little. <laughs> they were they were the god and goddess of my existence. Are you and an only child? No, I had two younger sisters. And I also have two older half-sisters who I found in my late 30s from my father's first marriage. But that's another story. But I feel feel like books and stories uh, my mother read to me, um, and then I learned to read myself as soon as I could. And I I found that books and stories were a way of, of... understanding the world or understanding a larger um, kind of psychological truth that I couldn't put into words. And I, I certainly had no way of articulating my own experience, but I could disappear into books. Books were dark, too. Um, back then, it was okay for kids to be exposed to things um, in books that sort of echoed what we saw in the world. Fairy tales, especially, I found there was good and there was evil and, and good triumphed and there mm-hmm. were struggles. And um, I and of course, the instant I understood that these books were written by people and I was a person, I thought, well, then I can write also. And so I started writing stories as a natural offshoot. I think my brain was just made that way, honestly. I think some people are are born writers, and some people come to it later in life, and they're both equally valid kinds of writers. Um, you're sort of one or the other, mm-hmm. and you can never tell from someone's writing what kind they are. But I, I was sort of just born with that kind of predilection, born that way. So the reading and the writing, if I can put words in your mouth, gave you solace and comfort and was also a way for you to transcend, right? Exactly. Yes. And also disappear. Because as the firstborn, it's a pretty tough position in the family. You kind of have to blaze the way and also everyone's watching you while you do it. And so <laughs> and I, I I was self-conscious. I wasn't I wasn't a very good firstborn. I wasn't suited to that. I really liked being invisible. I liked being in the middle of the room reading a book and tuning everyone out, but having them around me. And I also felt that it was a way to escape myself and escape sort of this position that I was in, um, in the family, sort of my little sisters looking to me for, for leadership that I wasn't necessarily equipped (laughs) to provide them. Sure. Being little myself, but, um, I also discovered characters in books and discovered sort of kindred spirits. And I think a lot of kids feel this way when they, when they find like, for me, it was like Harriet the Spy and Pippi Longstocking and then Jane Eyre and Sarah Crewe in A Little Princess and um, just on and on and on. And these people, I, I found that I could return to a book and the book would open up and let me in again. And then I would discover new things about these characters. And so for me, reading and writing has always been a, a way of connecting and connecting with parts of myself, connecting with the writer, connecting with the characters in the book. And then in writing, it's it's really the same thing. I feel like all my books start with an idea of characters, an idea of um, characters. And then setting a book into motion is there's always a sort of 
I, I have this sort of mischievous desire for trouble with my characters. I noticed, yes. <laughs> and I'm really interested in what happens when people come un unstuck, when, or people are forced to make a change, or people decide to make a change, or something happens to people to, to make them sort of deal with it um, in, in some way that's generally... For me, kind of comic in in, a, in on the darker shade of the spectrum, and I find it interesting because I think I think that there is there is like an object at rest likes to remain at rest, and an object in motion is likely to remain in motion, and so this object at rest comes into my mind, this sort of person character in a situation with some sort of tangential connection to one of a quality in me that I haven't really dealt with or expressed, or um, maybe we share um, a certain um, bilious view of, of hypocrisy, or there's something, there's something about this person that interests me right away. And then, and then something happens in my mind to this person. For example, with the great man, there's Teddy, <laughs> there's Teddy, who's, who's kind of a bitch um, in, in, I think, a nice way, um, but she takes no prisoners and suffers no fools. And at the beginning of the book, she's opening the door to this rumpled young biographer, male, who drives up in a Volvo, and she immediately has opinions about him. And to me, that, that just set the whole book in motion, was her opening the door to her dead lover's biographer, um, who's there to interview her about her dead lover. And um, she is interesting to him insofar as she can give him information, and she knows this. And so she sort of toys with him and flirts with him, and ultimately, at the end of the chapter, I think, seduces him by cooking for him. Mm -hmm. And so there's a dynamic set in motion. He comes into her house. She's an object at rest until he comes in, and things start to change for her um, through talking to him. Um, for me, this is fascinating as a writer to, and also as a reader. I love it when things like this happen in books. Um, I don't require an enormous plot. I don't need sort of wars to break out. I, I don't need death. Uh, I just I really like I like these moments in people's lives when they are forced to or choose to one or the other reckon with themselves because of some sort of confluence between their own personalities and the world. So basically things happen, things happen and they react. And that sets a, to me sets a plot in motion in a satisfying way. When you were starting to write as a young person and then continued to do so, was writing fostered for you or was this your act, solely your act? I, my first reader and my, my main reader through my life has been my mother. My mother is a reader and um, has become a writer in retirement. She was a clinical psychologist with a private practice for many years and, a, and an excellent amateur cellist, um, and she played chamber music. I always thought she could have been a writer, and I felt a kind of an embrace from her with the idea of me being a writer. I felt like that, that was something that, that she saw. It's like... Some parents want their kids to be doctors, and they're really excited when their kids get into medical school. My mother could not have been more excited when I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop. For her, that was like, you know, that you was like, it. yeah, you got it, yeah, <laughs> like, oh, yay, oh, honey. But but from a really early age, she read my stories and encouraged me, and read me stories, and and we always had books, no matter how poor we were. 
Um, thank God for libraries. They are a godsend to people who can't afford books. And so there were always, there was always, and she would always talk about books with me and she loved books. And there was never any sense that I was letting someone down by, by being a writer, that being poor was something that, that we sort of accepted um, as the way things were. And the first line of The Great Man, to bring that up again, is it's amazing how well you can live on very little money. And that was something my mother always said. And, and that was sort of how we lived. And so the idea of getting rich, I mean, that was never in the plan, luckily. But the thing my mother gave me, and I think my sisters too, was the sense that we should pursue the things that we loved because we love them and and for no other reason. And life would find a way of sorting itself out. She's very adventurous, my mother. She's <laughs> She's been through a lot and, and has always landed on her feet. And I think there was part of that attitude for me in going for broke and not having a plan B, just thinking I'm going to be a writer and that is that. Mm -hmm. That's all I want to do um, on earth <laughs> and really all I'm suited for. And, and so I didn't have that anxiety, like maybe I should be a lawyer, maybe I should go to academia. I had tremendous anxiety around money. Because you didn't have any? Right. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I'm never anxious when I do have money. Isn't that isn't that interesting? <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me get this right. You're anxious when you do have it. No, I'm anxious when I don't have it. I guess old habits die hard. Is that still ingrained in you that things could change in a heartbeat? Always, always. And if they do, I've I've learned from my mother how to how to cope and how to sort of, you know, how to buy dried beans and cook them in a pressure cooker and live on them if I have to. You know what I mean? Like sure. Like, Having money isn't the be-all and end-all. Well, let me, I would be remiss in not asking you if at some point your parents divorced. Oh, yeah. They divorced when I was six. And then my mother was a single mother largely for the rest of my childhood. Did you have any relationship with your dad after that divorce? Very little. He disappeared a number of years after the divorce. And I didn't see him again until I was, I saw him briefly as a teenager. And then I saw him in my 20s and... That is the extent of our relationship. Okay. When you were going through school and in college as well, you knew then that you were going to, and I use the term in quotes, major in writing or English. So you had talent. Let's just get that out. Well, there are so many talented writers. I think pretty much everyone has talent. But I had a determination and I had discipline. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, from the age of about five or six and just kept writing and kept writing and kept reading. And I was monomaniacal and obsessed and passionate about it. And I think that more than anything is what made me a writer. I think I did have a, a sort of native, yes, talent, but I don't think that's that uncommon. I think what made me different from other people who had talent was that I just wasn't going to be deterred. And I, I think that so many people who do end up publishing books and do end up having writing careers share this. It's just like a blunt, bullish determination. And it's bigger than you, right? Is that what it's like? It's just bigger than you. It's bigger than me. And and it's like it's like a bulldozer running through my life. I can't, I, I'm flattened. <laughs> uh -huh. I can't escape it. If I'm not writing, I don't really exist in wow. some fundamental way. I can't imagine what that is like when writing is a natural act. I think for myself, I was a newscaster. So, yes, I mean, writing the news was very easy because I'm just giving out facts. But to sit 
in front of a computer at a typewriter to date myself was just not a natural act for me. And I'm so, yeah, I'm going to gush. I'm in awe of people who do that and do it successfully. And I think that that, how's this for a pun, really speaks volumes. <laughs> well, you know, I couldn't do what you do. I, I would find that really hard. Um, and I, I, I really think that we're all sort of made to do different things. The hardest part for me in, in my writing life was in my 20s when I got out of the Iowa Writers Workshop, moved to New York, and um, I had been so intimidated at the workshop that I started writing um, in a way that wasn't really natural to me. I, I was, in a word, pretentious. And I was, I was writing in a way that I thought I had to write in order to be great. I didn't really trust my sort of natural voice and my natural predilections. And I, 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 tried to, I tried to be a kind of mashup of Ann Beatty and Faulkner, if you can even imagine such an animal. Well, that's an interesting combo. It didn't work, to, to put it mildly. And so I spent these years um, in the latter half of my 20s. I kept writing and writing and writing um, because it's always what I, what I do. But I was writing badly and I was writing falsely and I was writing anxiously. Hmm. And, and I would lie awake at night and think, what if I'm just a bad writer? What if I'm no good? What if that's just the truth? Like this thing that I'm meant to do, this thing that, I mean, I don't know what else to do. There's nothing else I want to do, but what if I'm not good at it? And that had never occurred to me before in my life. And it was actually very good for me, I think, as a writer to go through that and to come back slowly, um, sort of like um, a wildly swinging pendulum returning to sort of plumb, come back slowly to my own voice in a way that was organic and also born out of real fear for the first time in my life. I'd always assumed that I was on this trajectory. I read a lot of biographies at one point of writers I admired, and they all just seemed to have this natural trajectory from childhood to great writerdom. And I always just assumed I was on that arrogantly mm -hmm. and naively, as it turned out. And to have this happen to me and to have myself to doubt myself so fundamentally that I started then thinking about other things that I should maybe think about doing, like marrying someone rich. Ah. Just, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then I did start thinking about maybe law school or you know, going into publishing and becoming an editor or something really grounded, because what if I couldn't make it as a writer? And Ultimately, it just fired me up even more. And, and it was sort of a test, I think, that I didn't ask for, but, but just sort of came about. And the way I met it was by plowing through it and, and, and keeping writing and, and knowing I wasn't writing well and, and knowing The New Yorker wasn't going to publish this one either. But when I think about my life as a writer, which now spans 50 years from when I started writing until now, what I see at every turn is that I just kept writing and that's it. That's really it. It's that simple. I, I didn't stop. And when I write badly, which I do at certain times, um, this gets back to your first question, why do you write? And some days I think I wish I didn't. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's some days when it's so hard and it feels like wading through molasses and I just, I feel stupid and like I have nothing to say. And, you know, I still have those days. They haven't gone away. Uh, it doesn't get easier. 
you just get more perspective. And I realize, oh, this is one of those times. Do you always have to have something going? Is there always have to be a book in your brain or a book on the computer? Is that what that's like for someone like you? Well, no. I go through, like, the time between the Epicure's Lament and the Great Man. The Great Man came out of a time when I had nothing. I had nothing going. What year was that, Kate? I think it was 2004. When did The Great Man come out? I can't remember, 2004. So it must have been September 11th happened, and I had sort mm -hmm. of a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get out of bed. I was crying so hard. So I did two things. I trained for and ran the New York City Marathon. Whoa. And I wrote The Epicure's Lament. Those two things were meant to cure my depression. And I ran the marathon. I finished the book. And then I, I was still depressed, lo and behold. Um, and so I, I couldn't write anything. And a couple of years went by and I, ha- I didn't have another book. And so I, the great man came out of a file that I'd forgotten about, actually two files in my computer. I unearthed them. I was just looking through all my old stuff, trying to figure out what to do because I, it, so much time had gone by and I hadn't written and I had sort of, I had taken a job teaching English as a second language. I was sort of I was just, I was floundering. Were you in New York at that time? I was. I was living in Brooklyn and I was married to my first husband and I was in Williamsburg. And something about September 11th, and I was so in love with New York, it was like a rupture. It really hit me um, hard. And I, I felt I felt myself sort of stagger sideways. New York was my subject. It was what I wrote about. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt like I didn't know how to write about it anymore. And then I found this file on my computer that I had, I had sort of I'd been toying with this character named Teddy and this character named Oscar and Oscar was alive and the biographer came and Teddy helped Oscar come downstairs. He had had a stroke. He could hardly talk. And so I, I was I got kind of interested in that. I thought, huh, I don't even remember writing that. That's that's funny. Um, Teddy's the one who interests me here. I think she's the one with something to say. And so I just kept working away at it. And I found another file with a, a different biographer named Ralph and and a diff, whole different scene. Oscar wasn't in it. And little by little, I just kept I kept sort of coming back to this book and coming back to it and wondering what it really was. And um, it took that book um, sort of took me out of my depression. I think I think it was a problem I had to solve. It was it turned into this this whole question of first I had to kill Oscar, obviously. He had to be dead <laughs> for the book to come to life. That was the first thing. And then I, I realized I needed both biographers. That was the second thing. And then the third thing was I realized I needed all the women, not just Teddy. And so it sort of it got me interested in this group of women in New York at a certain time and the idea of older women and the idea of their relationships and wanting things and how when you're older, you still your life is not tied up in a neat bow. You still have things to do. And how interesting if the biographers set all this in motion. And so that book came out of, to answer your question finally, I realize this is a very long answer, but it it came out of this period, this fallow period of, again, sort of not being able to write, thinking maybe maybe I'm done, maybe I don't have any more books in me. But I kept coming back to this. And so, again, it's this this idea of I don't always have something going, but I always want to generate something. Again, to focus on the great man, look what happened. 
you won the 2008 Penn Faulkner Award for that book. That blew me away. I, I know. And I won it. I did. They can't take it away. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't I would have a neon sign in front of my house, for God's sake. What do you mean, take it away? <laughs> I want to get a tattoo of it. There you go. I, 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 how could that not be a seminal event in your life for heaven's sake? That was quite a thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I never in a million years thought I I would win the Penn Faulkner. I, I never, it never even occurred to me to, to dream of it. Um, it seemed so out of reach. Did you need to win it? And what I mean by that is, did you need that to validate you? Well, in retrospect, I think every single writer wants to win the Penn Faulkner. I mean, I show me a writer who doesn't want to win the Penn Faulkner, and I then he I or she is not a very good writer, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I'll, I'll I'll give you a million dollars. I really think, at least for me, it was it was the most validating thing that could have happened. More than the Pulitzer, more than the National Book Award, the Penn Faulkner is. It's given by your fellow novelists, and there's nothing, it never feels political to me. Like, whoever wins it, I always think that's the book the judges really liked. And so I felt like, I guess it didn't change me. Um, Writing was still hard. It didn't change the way I wrote. It didn't make me feel any more or less arrogant or insecure. I mean, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's a a private thing with my writing. It's a double-edged sword because there was a lot of talk about, oh, I can't believe that chick lit writer won the Penn Faulkner. Is that how you were described? My first book came out um, right after Bridget Jones's Diary, and it was about a young woman in New York City who drinks too much and has a bad job. And so I was lumped in with, there was a whole chick lit thing that started right in 1999 when In the Drink came out, along mm-hmm. with The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. And Laura Zygman's book came out a little before. I think she was the first, Animal Husbandry. And then there was Suzanne Finnemore's Otherwise Engaged. And there, so there were a bunch of books that seemed similar on the surface. And I think that the world of, the, the sort of book world likes to have um, themes and trends and stuff like that. So in short, yes, I was, I was pegged as a chiclet writer. Well, you turned that around, didn't you? You nailed it so many more times after that, that let them call you what they want. Really, indeed, let them, because you can't control what anyone says, not critics, not readers, nobody. Well, that's you- the hard part, I would think, about being an author, a novelist, because here you are, you've written this thing that, you know, it's like giving birth. You've got this child, and then it's out there, and when people start to read or there's critiques or whatever, then you, you're completely naked, and yeah. that must be, whoa, I just can't wrap my head around that, what that must be like. Oh, at first it was so hard. Oh, at first it was just torture. I just wanted to hide my head under a pillow, and I didn't expect it. I didn't expect any of it at all. It's, it was so different from my intentions in writing the book, the, the reception it got. And it did get a lot of attention because of the chick lit thing. So again, a double-edged sword. Um, I think with my second book, which was about a gay man sort of wandering around Manhattan daydreaming, um, that was definitely not chick lit. (laughs) 
Was it difficult for you to get a publisher? Yes, it was so it was incredibly difficult. I finished in the drink and sent it to my best friend's agent who took me on. And I thought, oh, good. Well, this is going to be easy. And um, then she sent it to probably a total of 27 editors wow. and they all rejected it. And so that that played itself out over six or seven months. And I repeatedly wanted to stab myself in the head. Every time she called, my heart would leap and I would think, oh, good. And then she would say, another rejection. Do you oh, want to wow. hear it? And I would say, oh, yes, of course. Being uh -huh. a masochist, I want to hear it. And um, a lot of people really hated it. And um, some people, you know, didn't think it would sell. But for whatever reason, I, nobody wanted to publish it until... A young associate editor at Doubleday named Danelle Downham, um, who had no power to acquire it, and in fact her boss didn't like it, loved it. And she called me and she said, do you want to meet for coffee? I have some ideas um, of how you could restructure it and make it better. And I said, are you kidding? I would love to. And so we talked for three hours on her own time after work. And I went away and over the course of the next few months took every single one of her suggestions. And then I sent it back to my agent. And in the meantime, while I'd been revising it, Danelle's boss had quit and she had been promoted. And so she bought it and she became my first editor. And I will thank her until the day I die because she seemed to be the only person in New York who believed in me at the time as a writer. And that's all you need is just one person. How seminal was New York in your life, considering where you grew up and Reed College is in Oregon, correct? Yes. I mean, why'd you come here? <laughs> well, okay. I left Berkeley at eight to move to Arizona. So I really grew up in Arizona from eight to eight to say 18. And Arizona was kind of a cultural wasteland in the 70s. And I was bookish and I played the violin. And all I could do was think about moving to New York when I got old enough. So New York to me was like the mecca of culture, of, of literature, of, of what was going on, of people, of sort of life as I wanted to live it. And so I went to college and then I went to graduate school and then I moved to New York. And that just seemed like the natural, I never wasn't going to move to New York. It was sort of my, my it was like becoming a writer. To me, to, to me living in New York and being a writer were inseparable. I'm so taken by the books that I've read of yours, but the book that may be crazy in a good way was The Astral, and that's the name of an apartment building in Brooklyn. And I was so taken by your main character, who is a man, and how rare that that is, that the story is told from his perspective, written by a woman. I just felt you really nailed it. I'm really glad to hear that. I've had three first-person male narrators in, in my novels, and all three of them I've felt so attuned to and aligned with. I feel like men are, men are very interesting to me, and it's, it's so satisfying to write from a male perspective. And it's so different from writing from a female perspective for me, for me in particular. I don't know if this is true of every writer, but I find that I can say things in a man's voice and give myself permission to kind of explore parts of my own psyche as a man. And I don't know why that is. I'm sure it's um, something that I need to outgrow. Um, why? <laughs> well, because I would like to be able to do it in a female voice and be just as 
sort of um, wide ranging and fearless. But I feel I've always felt that women's voices are more conscripted than men's for whatever reason that is. For example, um, my novel, The Epicure's Lament, which I think is my third novel, um, I wrote from the perspective of a very grouchy, misanthropic hermit living on the Hudson River who's 40, and um, he's a man, and he's smoking himself to death. And he has all kinds of horrible opinions that I don't necessarily share, but it gave me incredible blackly comic just delight to be able to just write it. And I feel like with Harry Quirk, there's something rueful and messy and and sort of failed about him. Right. <laughs> and I, I'm really interested in failure. I think it's um it's so anti-American and it's so it's so it's something that people don't people don't really want to explore. And so of course that makes me want to explore it. But it's real. It's part of who we are. I I feel like Harry is very is very um vulnerable and touching to me. And, and, um, I, I, I felt his plight very keenly and he's not a perfect person. He's very flawed. Right. Um, as a husband, as a father, as a poet, as, as a, you know, as a, as a human being. But I felt that, that he was flawed in ways that interested me and, and that I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to go with him through this neighborhood that I had left. And it was sort of my goodbye to New York it was elegiacal to me, um, like a, a way of leaving New York behind and, and saying goodbye to it. And it's funny, I wrote it and then I haven't really thought very much about it since I wrote it. And uh, it's interesting you bring it up and it's interesting to hear the name Harry Quirk again. It's like, I feel this kind of fond, oh yeah, I remember him. Mm-hmm. I, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you write every day? Um, yes and no. I talk a lot about writing every day. I think I should write every day. Um, I intend to write every day. And I, I think about writing every day. But the actual nuts and bolts writing, I don't. I used to. And I think when I was younger, it, I, was, I was so much more driven to actually put words down. In middle age, I feel like I think I've written so much that I feel I feel the weight of all these words that I put into the world and I'm I feel a little less compelled to just put words out and a little more compelled to think. And whatever that means for my writing I'm not really sure. I'm I I I find myself sort of hesitant. There were some years there where I was just words just tumbled out of me and I I just felt this fire and this sort of ambition and a kind of a kind of desperate need to like to connect to the world through writing and connect to readers and connect to myself and and this this loneliness really in my marriage as well and lately in in recent years I have not felt that so much and I feel like the kind of book I want to write now is shorter tighter more thoughtful and more focused I think a lot of what I wrote um, in those early books, especially, came out of, of a feeling there was an imbalance in my life that I needed to fix, that I needed to write. I needed to tell my own story. I needed to write things from my own perspective because I felt powerless. And this started when I was a little girl. Yeah, this wow. Why I wrote. And this, this feeling of when something would happen, like I'd be humiliated at my job 
or I'd, I'd be really hurt by someone or misunderstood, or I would feel like a jerk, like I'd said or done the wrong thing, which used to happen every minute. I would suddenly think I've got to write. I need to write. And I like an addict. And so putting words down for me was a way of taking power into my own hands of rewriting the narrative so that, so that I was in control. So that again, because my life was so chaotic, um, always until, until I think the last 10 years, it's, it's calmed down and settled for the first time ever. Do you know why that is? Uh, well, I left my first marriage. I left New York. I fell in love with a native New Englander and moved up to New Hampshire and Maine and found a writing community, found a community of friends, found a very happy, very contented second marriage and sort of found a life that doesn't make me feel crazy. And I found that in my 50s. And, so, and it's funny how it's it's changed why I write and how I write so profoundly, because I do think I was lonely until I met Brendan, who's now my husband, and until I came here. I think I was profoundly lonely and profoundly self-conscious and sort of always feeling like an outsider. Hmm. The sense of, of being wrong, not quite knowing the right thing to say, not um, never really fitting in. And so writing was my way of making myself feel better, to put it really simply. It's like the opposite of therapy. It's so not therapy. It doesn't solve anything. It just calls it all up. But I think I think in a way it's, it's harder for me to write when I'm contented and settled. It's hard for me to feel the need, except as, as a more fundamental, like it's how I make a living. It's my career. And I, I still have things to say, but I don't have the burning need to say them that I used to have. Well, there's also, I guess, this part of being able to enjoy life in a different way and that how life is such an ebb and a flow and it's not a bad thing. Yeah, that's true. And who knows what the next 10 years will bring? You never know. But I do, I do feel more outward now and less personal. Um, my concerns are, are more political, environmental, social. I don't think I'm alone in this. I think collectively, um, our heads have poked up out of the sand um, and we're all kind of looking around going, what have we done? Exactly. Or what has been done? Yeah. I'm so taken by your honesty. I feel like I really have a sense of Kate Christensen more so than when I'm reading her books. You're just a very real person. <laughs> well, it's a real pleasure to, to talk to you. Uh, you ask really good questions. I feel like they come out of real curiosity and, you, and, and thinking. I just really enjoyed meeting you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I'd love to come back. Then that's a deal. And everybody heard it. So, Kate Christensen, thanks so much for joining me today. And much more continued success and joy and life experiences. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 